Hey, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Equals. This is Nabil. And this is Max. Max, a little bit like the clouds above me. You're looking a bit gloomy today. Oh, I've got to say I'm feeling pretty gloomy. Um, we're leaving Kenya and the whole family's moving back to I'm going to miss you. August. Yeah, yeah, we're really going to miss you. We're really going to miss Kenya. We've loved our time here. And uh, yeah, it's a big thing. But the thing that's really upsetting me is in advance of that, last week we sent the dog to the UK. Marks. Yeah, the dog Marks, you know, um, and I'm really, really missing him. He's now happily in Grimsby in the UK, which is weird for a dog born in Kenya. But I imagine <laughs> he's forgotten about me altogether, but I'm really missing him. You're looking very cheerful, actually. I am feeling very cheerful looking at the stats of the podcast. We have listeners now in over 150 countries. 150 countries, can you believe that? No, I, I don't quite believe it, to be honest. But that's, <laughs> that's what it says on the machine. Yeah, so from Papua New Guinea to... to pa- a big shout out to listeners in Pakistan to to wherever, Max. Yeah, to our one listener in Paraguay. <laughs> yeah, all, the, all the peas. No, it's, it's wonderful to have Global Reach exciting, and, yeah. and we're very honoured to have you all listening. On to today's episode. Yeah, no, today uh, it's really fascinating. We're going to be talking about the relationship between the rise in authority and inequality. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a real honour to have Ece Temelkaran, Turkish, well, originally broadcaster, journalist, now best-selling author, join us for the podcast today. And she's written a fantastic book on the seven steps from democracy to dictatorship, how to lose a country. And she's got some really profound things to say here. What's particularly interesting, Max, is that, you know, over the last few years, you and I and others, we've tried to look at this relationship, haven't we, between inequality and the breakdown of democracy. There's that famous quote that we've had on repeat said by the former US Supreme Court Justice Louis Brande that you can either have extreme concentration of wealth in the hands of the few or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. Yeah, no, I think I think that was a real eye-opener for us, wasn't it? As Oxfam, we were working on these two what seemed to be quite separate trends, you know, a big sharp increase in the gap between rich and poor in country after country around the world. And then at the same time, we're seeing this trend of growing authoritarianism, a kind of retreat of democracy. And this was this revelation, really, for me, that these two things are closely linked. Because if you're a leader and you've got a choice, you've either got a choice between making your country more equal for everybody, or you've got the option of clamping down on free speech and clamping down on democracy. And Leader after leader is just making the wrong choice. Absolutely. And the other thing that makes this interview so interesting to do is this current time that we're living through, isn't it, Max? Where, you know, the the president of the Open Society Foundations, I thought, described it really well in talking about viral authoritarianism. Definitely immense opportunism on the part of authoritarianisms all around the world, using the cover of uh, coronavirus to to kind of accelerate this slide towards authoritarianism. Let's speak to the expert. Shall we get to it? Yeah, let's. Eche, hi, welcome to Equals. This is Nabil, and it's such a real pleasure and honour to have you on Equals. Really love your book. Actually, really admire your resilience, right? So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Nabil, and hello, Max. Um... It is such a pleasure to be on your show today, you know, talking to Kenya. It still amazes me how this 
thing can happen. Before we get into the really serious stuff, actually, let me start with actually something kind of personal, right? You know, I was really excited to read your book, but what really excited me is when I saw the recommendation from Margaret Atwood, who of course wrote The Handmaid's Tale. I've just finishing watching the series with my wife. Is that a good representation of the world that we're heading into in your world? I, I am official Cassandra of global politics at this point. But then I'm trying to be a little bit of Mary Poppins as well. So uh, I don't want to be called a Cassandra uh, so much, you know, because people think that the book is completely depressing, but they don't read it. It's not like that. So I have to tell that. (laughs) It's not. I mean, you're really strong on activism and how we must all be engaged. I I, I personally took, took that from it too. Actually, let me kick off by asking about this time that we're living through right now now this very specific coronavirus crisis and it's actually really interesting just reading your book with all that's going on around us i'm really interested to ask have you got any hope like some people do that this crisis could serve as some sort of wake-up call to build more democratic societies or do you think maybe we're seeing this drift to authoritarianism, mm-hmm. you know, really being supercharged? Where are you at on this? Hope is too fragile a word for our times now and for the current political situation. So I'd rather go with the word determination. So rather than having a shallow hope, uh, we, I, I, I think try to be more determined and more committed and we should believe in humankind so that we can, you know, get over this. I mean, like, it is absurd, of course. Like, we're in 21st century. Uh, we, we were, you know, right before Corona, we were talking about uh, living in Mars or, you know, high-tech stuff, augmented reality. And all of a sudden, the entire world is relearning how to wash their hands. So this is like a really interesting times for, uh, for the entire world. Indeed, it really yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but then... Of course, times of fear uh, is not very good for people like me, but best times for authoritarian leaders because they can legitimize the you know, oppressive measures by saying that they are related to our health. So any kind of uh, oppression can be legitimized at this point, especially the border restrictions. To tell you the truth, I didn't see my husband for six months and he's coming tomorrow, hopefully, and I'm not still sure that he's going to cross the border. So really interesting because the rules are constantly changing and so on. Yeah, I really hope so too. I mean, it's hard to think of a worse set of leaders for a crisis like this one. You've spoken really well about this kind of drift towards authoritarianism towards so-called populism. I really don't like the word populism, by the way. I'd, I'd, I'd love to know what you actually think about that word. But one thing you've connected it to is is free market ideas of neoliberalism. And that's something we've talked about a lot on the podcast and the connection between neoliberalism and and inequality. How do you see the connection between neoliberalism and authoritarianism? Before getting to that... Yes, you are right not for not liking the word populism because it's such a domesticated and like, hmm, you know, uh, ambivalent word. Uh, and maybe it is time we call it fascism now <laughs> because, you know, the oppression is developed enough, matured enough that we can now call it fascism. It's a new kind of messy fascism. It doesn't come in uniforms. And it doesn't march uh, in, what do you call it, duck steps or whatever, like, you know, soldier steps. It has a swagger, uh, a certain swagger to it. But then 
fascism. I really agree. Yes, uh, this is why I lo- I wrote How to Lose a Country in the first place to show people that uh, right wing populism, authoritarianism, fascism, whatever we call it, this new political insanity is not a natural disaster that all of a sudden hits our planet. The main point I wanted to make by writing the book is that neoliberalism in its very essence brings fascism. It is a nat- almost a natural process that we ended up with these leaders and with these masses full of hatred and violence and vulgarity. And I do think that it is. It started at the end of 1970s when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, on either on each side of the Atlantic Ocean, declared that there is no alternative. Capitalism is the only alternative. So since then, we have been treating capitalism, this regime of greed and mercilessness, as a natural phenomena. It's as if it is embedded in our heads. It is not an economic system but it is as if our natural habitat, which is one of the most shameless political statements of human history, I guess. So after that, there came the systemic depolitization of the masses. Through that depolitization, democracy became a shallow thing, which is limited to going to ballot boxes every four years, five years, whatever, using your, uh, you know, casting your vote, and then that's it. You don't have to do anything. And politics became, a, you know, started to be perceived as a dirty thing that we don't have to deal with anymore. There are people, there are technocrats, there are politicians doing it for us in parliament or in institutions. So we don't th- have to think about this bloody, tiring, nonsense thing that we call politics. The other thing we're very interested on equals is about the extreme rise in inequality at the same time. And obviously, there's quite a causal link between neoliberalism and that too. I wondered if you had any reflections on the, you know, the the massive concentration of wealth that we've seen at the same time and this rise in authoritarianism. Absolutely. I mean, like, the, the, the word democracy does not mean much to the people who are starving, because they now know that as long as democracy is constrained by the contract of capitalism, the promises of equality, social justice, and better living conditions is false. They know this because they have been living in this world since 1970s, and they keep seeing that the privileged is going are going on with their life, whereas uh, the starvation and the inequality is growing and growing. So democracy does not mean anything to them unless democracy provides them with basic humane living conditions. So uh, my point is, if there is no social justice, there is no democracy. Unless you have social justice, you cannot build a proper democracy. Otherwise, democracy without social justice is just a theatrical act that is going on in the higher echelons of politics. That's fascinating, Eche, and it's interesting because it's almost like neoliberalism does a disservice to democracy itself, is one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from this. I want to, Eche, just dig deeper into this issue of populism and it's interesting over the last few years and you look at centrists all over the world and and they rage at all kinds of populism and I want to kind of just dig deeper into this you know I'm, I'm thinking of movements in different countries I'm thinking of you know angry 
people connecting emotively, building their movements, really dismantling neoliberal mechanisms, laughing at the horrors of elitism. <laughs> I'm using and playing with some of the words that you use in your book here, but I'm interested to know, can there be good populism? Isn't it a good thing if people are angry and organizing in such a way? It depends how you define populism. I define populism as uh, steering the emotions of the masses to manipulate them into a political choice that is against their benefit and the benefit of the humankind. This is how I've defined populism. So, mm. so there's no such thing as a left-wing populist. Why either. would we need left-wing populism? Okay, if it's about deceit in its very essence, what we call populism, then we shouldn't need left-wing populism either. I think this is about how much you have faith in humankind. If you feel like you have to deceive you know, people into believing that equality matters, then it means that you are not really believing in humankind, in humans. Inequality affects us all. It is unsustainable, it is against morals, and it's against the basic human values. That's it. So we don't have to deceive, deceive people into believing this, I think. I do want to believe that, actually. Yes, I know. I like that. So for you, populism involves a certain element of deception, and that, that makes sense, yeah. As well as, actually, it is organizing and mobilizing ignorance against the better possibilities for the humans. So there is an ignorance, the, the, the aspect of ignorance in populism as well. If there is no ignorance, either imposed or, you know, natural, there, there cannot be, pop, populism cannot operate. Just, just as a, a, a follow-up to that one, which you also talk about in the book really well, is the, is the role of the media in, in fueling that ignorance and you distinguish between being neutral and being objective. Could you say a little bit about about that? Because it's a source of massive frustration for us. You read things on like the BBC that they say, what's it? Those who are opposed to anti-racism protests. Yeah, so they, they tie <laughs> yeah. themselves in knots. They can't call someone a racist. They have to say, this is someone who's opposed to anti-racists. <laughs> <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, so you, perhaps you could talk about that. Journalists were made to feel like neutral in order to prove their objectivity, which is a very dangerous thing. Because if you're a neutral in a society where there is inequality, you are automatically on the side of the powerful. You don't have to do anything more than being neutral to be on the side of the powerful if you are living in an unfair uh, society. So actually... By being so-called objective, whereas actually neutral, the media has been operating on the side of the privileged since 1970s. And when you try to call a racist racist, or when you call the lucky few the lucky few, you are considered as politicized, whereas this is not politicism, this is just a fact. Yeah. So, yeah. This all goes to there is no alternative, I think, our dear Margaret and our dear Ronald. There is an alternative, and actually media was supposed to be the voice of that alternative, because by nature, journalism is opposition force. It has to be. If I can just just go a bit further there, one, I'm just reflecting on what you're saying, and I'm trying to put myself you know, listening to this, where many of listener, our listeners are in the United States or the UK or in Europe. And I'm thinking about how they may be receiving this message compared to people in countries that 
have you know regularly seen coups or dictatorships over many years do you feel that your message is getting across around the world because one of the profound things about your books is that you're saying hello people who are been used to you know decades or centuries of democracy this is also coming for you do you think that message is getting across oh my god you you hit my uh, <laughs> soft spot now. you know what i'm so tired of this this trying to tell the established white man. Can I say that? I think you can. Yeah, yeah. of course I you can. can say yeah, that. yeah, yeah. As a white <laughs> man, I can say, say it a lot it more, up. actually, actually. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like, I, I have like so many stories about the book events that I w- went through after, before and after writing How to Lose a Country. First, because I'm a woman, I have to go through the test. Am I good enough to write the book? <laughs> and so on. I'm not even talking about that. But then there comes the almost reflexive, almost a reflex uh, reaction to, no, it cannot happen here. You're coming from Turkey. Talk about Turkey because it's a crazy country. Those things can happen there. But like we are, you know, United Kingdom. We are United States of America. There's a bit of fear there because they actually know that something is wrong, but they do not want to admit that they are as they can be as low as Turkey in that perception. So um, there is this, you know, strong reaction, especially coming from white men, by the way, which is not interesting, but expected, but like still strange in your book you talk about it's the white men that for decades have had a monopoly on lying and you talk about the deer in the in the royal forest and how uh, it used to be that only the king was allowed to shoot the deer and now everyone's shooting the deer and no one really knows what to do i thought that was such a great yeah that's social media yeah this deer example from i think it was from the uh, post-truth chapter in the book now, yeah, they had the you know power of the word, and everything was Eurocentrist, and Europe was supposed to be the safe haven of democracy, and it is not, of course, easy for them to see that democracy can be damaged in the cradle of democracy. So I understand their fear and their anxiety, but then I come bearing gifts. I am not only the Cassandra, but I am also the <laughs> poppins of democracy. I come bearing gifts. I'm telling you, this is happening now to you. It happened to us 15 years ago. This was the step one, two, whatever. And we are now on seventh step. But you can stop the current. But being angry, expressing anger, or making fun of the situation, making fun of these right-wing populist leaders is not political action. It is the illusion of political action. And you think that you can just you know, distance yourself from what's coming towards you by, you know, making fun of it or like not taking seriously or, you know, be, being angry about it, but it won't, it won't help you. Uh, just be serious about this and listen to what I'm saying. It, I'm not expecting anything. It is just, I do believe that fascism cannot be beaten in one country only. And by the way, uh, if these guys, you know, all these right-wing populist leaders of the world, whoever you can think of, they are constantly paying respect to each other on public stage. They are telling openly that they are supporting each other. So, hey, guys, why don't we do the same? Huh? Why, why is not that an option? I'm like, mm. if you are victim to your arrogance in Britain or in the United States, you cannot learn from the example of Turkey. Please, please. 
uh, understand that this is not about me trying to teach you democracy. It is more about me trying to help ourselves call for help for my country and for you know other countries as well, for all the people who are like me, who feel like they're losing their country. Just on that, I mean, we finish every podcast with, with a similar question, which is about kind of, and you've already talked about the, you'd rather say determination than, than hope, but the, the question around mm-hmm. kind of activism, there's a great piece in the book where you, I think you quote someone saying, what would I to what would I tell my grandchildren that I tweeted as much as I could, you know, which I absolutely <laughs> loved. The idea that because I spend my life retweeting kind of progressive things to all of my Twitter followers <laughs> or, or who all agree with me. Uh, so, yeah, that really, that really hit home. So in terms of kind of for listeners who want to stand up and do something about this, what's your message message to them in terms of activism? First of all, the world is changing, has changed since I wrote the book, uh, since the book is published. By the way, the book is published only one year ago, but still, I mean, like things are happening really mm. fast. The history has accelerated. So there are really good things happening in today's world. To start with, Black Lives Matter movement has spanned the entire globe. That's an amazing thing. But what I am seeing right now in terms of global politics might be changing our lives, you know, dramatically in the coming decade. I see that the the new dynamic of politics will be built upon the tension between the local politics and the central politics. Central politics in several countries and in several big, powerful, so-called democratic countries has been seized by right-wing populism, you know, authoritarianism and so on. But then local governments are seeing that this inequality, this unfairness, this injustice cannot sustain. So the local powers, the municipalities, local governments, they are hearing more and more the voices of the progressive movements. And these progressive movements, probably for the first time in several decades, incorporating their energy to local governments and municipalities. So the center might not hold, but the periphery seems like holding. It is going to hold. And in the coming decade, I think we will be talking about how to organize around the local government. In my mind, there is a picture of this. You know, the, the, you know they, they lay down the wrecks of planes and ships underwater for the wreck divers. And then by time, those wrecks are you know, covered with sea life and they transform, they become hubs of life. I think the local authorities will function like this. We know the representative democracy, our system today is collapsing, and it's sinking. It's like a sinking ship. And when it sank, I think the new progressive movements, like the fish schooling and shoaling around the wreck, they're going to inhabit in these local government constructions and they are going to create the new politics that we have been longing for for several decades. That's a really, really nice note to end on, Eche. I was just reflecting with Max before we started this episode that, oh, this is going to be a pretty dark episode, but you've managed to direct a... I hope somewhere. Okay, I'll tell you this. Um, I, uh, I told my editor before, uh, I'm now writing a book, new book, and it's due for March 2021. And the 
the day I decided to write the book, uh, I told my editor, you know what? This is going to be a joyful book. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to write, but it's going to be a joyful book because I am so bored of seeing people getting depressed by, you know, by my words. So. <laughs> but maybe, I think we need both, right? I mean, this podcast is about hope in the face of inequality and injustice. So, uh, we thank you very much for an amazing interview. We really look forward to the next book as well. We I'm really sure do. We'll, we'll talk again then. We'll probably have you back on, Eche, if that's okay. Oh, anytime. Anytime, really. I'm um, like, this is so nice to speak to you two gentlemen. Uh, so thank you very much. out there max i gotta tell you i really enjoyed that interview i learned loads i thought eche was really strong on this relationship between inequality and the breakdown of democracy i felt she gave us rays of light actually amidst all this darkness but one thing i want to pick on is you know how important it is to call out fascism for what it is instead of hiding behind these wishy-washy terms yes i agree i mean words are so important and the words that are being used at the moment are effectively sanitizing a drift towards fascism. Words like populism or strongmen leaders, all these euphemistic ways of talking about what is a deeply, deeply disturbing drift towards racism, authoritarianism, and as she says in the interview, fascism. Absolutely. And I think that's one massive part of it, isn't it, Max? But there's also this whole conflation between what's happening on the left and what's happening on the right, as if you know, people fighting against tax injustice or people fighting for free healthcare on the left are the same as people who are trying to you know, build walls around people on the right. They both share some similarities in their popularity, but they're not the same. They're not the same. And this conflation of you know, this inherent suspicion of anything that's so-called popular I, it just it, it, it serves a certain centrist agenda, a status quo agenda, a status quo agenda, and it, it's it's dangerous again because it, it, there's a huge choice and a huge difference between those who want social justice and are speaking to the inherent popularity of causes like free healthcare or taxation of the rich, and those on the right who want to blame immigrants or drive a kind of white supremacist agenda. I mean, the idea that they're all mutually suspect is is really wrong inherently false and one thing i do feel positively about this interview is that you know people are hearing the wake-up call more than ever that you know people are not hitting snooze anymore that people are worried in many many more places around the world even in countries which have rich histories of democracy you know of stability that they're seeing actually there's something happening wrong in our countries as well i think that's good i mean that's very different to two three years ago you know I, very few people are still sitting back and saying oh that that's terrible but it could never happen here yeah i think that's gone but i think what is still there and i think is problematic is this idea that these kind of authoritarian leaders are in some way anomalies that they've just come out of nowhere that there's no connection with uh, what's gone before that if we could just get rid of them then we could go back to the good old normal days and I thought she was really strong that they, you know, there's a clear sequence that has led us to where we are at the moment yeah we don't need a return to normal we need a shift to social justice oh absolutely and there's a link between the economic model of the last few decades and the rise of these people on that note we bring it to a close today thanks everyone for joining us do share the podcast with family with friends do give us a solid rating on the app platform that you're listening to 
solid that's a bit like populism you mean a good yeah rating. sorry should we just say five stars yeah. <laughs> i think let's be explicit with our language thank you everybody um and uh yeah wonderful to talk to you as always do join us next time thank you